Well, good morning, everybody. Exciting to start the new year with you. Uh, if you're a guest with us, haven't been part of our, our worship gatherings in the past, I'm Ross, uh, the teaching pastor here. Uh, so happy that you're here this morning. Welcome. Uh, there's another campus that we often will refer to uh, called River Tree South, and they are meeting at Goldsmith Schiffman uh, in the cafeteria there. And so uh, there's another portion of the body uh, that is serving and setting up and taking down and worshiping and uh, connected through this service, through streaming. And so everybody at River Tree South, we're grateful for you this morning too. So as we start this new year, I can just tell you there's a, there's a lot of things kind of coming out of the Christmas season and the time that we had together, uh, things that we were able to do uh, kind of through that season and even, even worshiping downtown for a, Christ, a special Christmas service. And then now getting closer, really just, uh, uh, it won't be long, just a few weeks away from opening up another campus and launching the downtown campus. A lot of things that I'm excited about, trusting that God is going to um, stretch us, uh, provide opportunities for us to know him more deeply, uh, things that we'll be praying about, things that we'll be doing together and serving alongside one another, and hopefully making a, distant, uh, a difference in our city and in our neighbor's life uh, for Christ. So um, I'm excited what we get to do. We are uh, going to jump back into the Gospel of Mark, and if you, again, if, you're, if you've been a guest with us, we, we typically work through books of the Bible, and so we are in Mark chapter 12. We took a break during the Christmas holidays uh, from the Gospel of Mark, but it's a great way for you if you don't know exactly what to read during the week, or if you pick up your Bible and go like, I, you know, where could I start? Uh, it's a great way to follow, up, follow along that we'll kind of make our way through the gospel. And so you could read chapter 12 or next week, you know, read chapter 13 and where we'll be headed. Uh, and then we can kind of talk about that. And a lot of our life groups, our small groups that meet throughout the week, uh, do exactly that. They'll share thoughts about what God's word is saying within that chapter of the book that we're reading or follow up on things that maybe God was impressing upon your heart that you experienced when we gathered on Sunday morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. Verse 41, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So maybe you've heard that story before. Uh, maybe uh, being part of a church or, or involved in some way, uh, an opportunity to talk about this story has been highlighted and, and, and the, the applications are, are various. Uh, I even know some church traditions uh, that uh, at first of the year, uh, every, this church will typically give a, a, a sermon on giving and tithing. And so it's easy to see a passage like that kind of being uh, offered out. And the applications are many. Things like uh, God sees when you give, just like Jesus saw this woman, um, that it's uh, the, the, the nature of the gift or the costliness of a gift is not by how much you have left, uh, by how much the gift cost, but how much you have left over. So it's not necessarily how much you paid for the gift, but what you still have in your bank account kind of highlights how big a sacrifice you made. Uh, another application that sometimes gets used for this passage is this idea that um, uh, no, no gift kind of in excess, you know, kind of comfortable giving doesn't honor anybody. Or that God wants to finance the earthly and kingdom work through you. 
And so God blesses us to then give back to the church and, uh, and to finance and to be part of the kingdom work. Those are all kind of applications that easily get laid on this passage. But I want to offer you something different today. I want to, I want to look at this passage in a way that maybe you've never heard it before. And, and I, I say that carefully because it, this isn't an original idea. They're, they're, this isn't a brand new um, perspective that I want to give you on this passage. But, but my sense is that often what's happening in this passage gets missed. And when we miss what's happening in the passage, then we misapply it. And so I want us to see what is that exactly going on in this passage. Why does Jesus reference this woman giving her last two coins uh, to the temple treasury uh, and and what is really the application for us this morning? What, what can we walk away with? So let me, let me help you set up context. Context always helps me kind of understand uh, what's going on in a passage when I, when I get one like this that maybe has more going on. So the context that Jesus is in is Jesus is in the last week of what we would call his earthly ministry. He has kind of been traveling and ministering for years with the disciples. And this is the last week, the last really few couple days before Jesus is on the cross and crucified. And so Jesus has already made his way into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphant entry, where people are uh, celebrating him. Uh, he is being heralded in as the potential Messiah by some, but uh, with great worry and great concern of the religious leaders around him. Uh, Jesus is, um, goes into the temple, uh, and as he goes into the temple, he begins to put everyone on notice that something is wrong. And Jesus begins turning over the tables of the money changers. He begins routing the people who are selling sacrifices. And he makes this comment. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. And so when Jesus makes this comment, he's referencing something that God said about the temple being a place for the world to meet, the world to encounter God. But Jesus is making a comment about as well, kind of as he represents God in this moment, saying that something is happening here that is wrong. And so Jesus puts the entire temple observance on pause. The scriptures actually say that you couldn't even walk through the temple courtyards carrying anything anymore. Jesus stopped the entire system at a high time within Israel because it's the Passover celebration. And so hundreds of thousands of people are making their way into Jerusalem, into the temple, buying and selling sacrifices, and Jesus stops it all. And it's at that moment, that bold move that Jesus made, where the plans to crucify him are determined by the religious leaders. They know he is a threat. And from that moment, Jesus spends the next couple days teaching within the temple. And as he teaches, the religious leaders in various ways come to trap him, to test him, to hopefully undermine his popularity, and, and really at best see him arrested and imprisoned. They, they want him done away with. So Jesus is in that moment where He's kind of wrapping up his experience within the temple. And it's important to know this, that, that Israel, it, it's not like they weren't looking for a Messiah. They were. Israel wanted a king. Israel wanted someone to come in, someone that God had talked about for centuries, to come in and kind of save Israel, bring Israel back to a state of prominence and power, to overthrow Roman oppression. All of these things were things that the people were longing for and praying for, but they just didn't want a Messiah like Jesus. Jesus was a nobody. He was from backwater Galilee. 
Uh, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't trained like all the other. He wasn't, he wasn't a military man. He, wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't talk about strength and power and overthrowing Rome. He talked about things about like the first becoming last and the last becoming first. And the way that he began to talk about his ministry, the religious leaders of the day understood that if this is the way the kingdom of God is going to work out, then all the people that are currently in power will not be in power. There is a changing of the guard that Jesus is talking about, that when God's kingdom truly comes in, that the people who are in positions of influence right now will not be. And when they heard Jesus say things like that, when they heard Jesus criticize the way the temple was working, the way the country was working, the way the people were being taught God's word, when they heard Jesus' concerns and dangers regarding them, they pushed back on that. And so there's this very threatening environment that Jesus is currently in, that he's walking in. More than just Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus actually began to say things like he was God, that he was the embodiment of Israel's God. Let me show you what he says. Back up just a little bit in verse 35 of Mark 12. It says, while Jesus was teaching the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. What what is Jesus saying here? Because he is speaking to something important. Since chapter 8 in Mark's gospel, the question of who is Jesus has been the predominant question of Mark's gospel, the thing that he continues to add information, continues to add insight, continues as Jesus' words and scriptures before it. And so here's another moment where Jesus speaks about who he is, who the Messiah is, with this special reference to King David. Now, it was a long-held tradition within the religious teachers, within the culture, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, that he would be David's son, that he would be a son of the king. And Jesus uses something interesting here. He says, not only will the Messiah be the son of King David, but he will be the Lord of King David. That's what he's saying here. And he uses Psalm 110. He highlights this. And he says, right here, it says, David writes to someone. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. So David is writing to somebody. He calls him my Lord. Now, to use that term means David is speaking about somebody who is his senior not his junior, which would be his descendant. And so what Jesus is offering us here is the idea that not only would the Messiah be the son of David, but would be a descendant of King David, but he would also be the Lord of David. He would be God as well. As the crowd listens, I mean, they're, they're, they're delighted in the way Jesus is kind of offering us the scripture and showing us that the Messiah will be the true king of Israel, that the Messiah will really be the authority over the temple, and he will be the embodiment of Israel's God. That's what Jesus is saying, declaring his identity. And then he goes on in verse 38, and you see this tension of who Jesus is offering up as the Messiah himself. And then he says this in verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law, They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. 
these men will be punished most severely. Now, Jesus, Israel's true king, has been, and he's been challenged at every turn of his ministry. There's been this constant opposition from the very people that have been put in position to serve God's people, uh, to teach God's word, uh, to bless God's people, to shepherd God's people. And Jesus has just, you know, shortly before this, he has shared this parable, the parable of the tenants. And the parable of the tenants is this picture that Jesus tells about a man, an owner who had a vineyard. And the owner went away, but he gave the vineyard, he entrusted the vineyard to stewards, to tenants, to renters, who would then take care of the vineyard. And as the owner then asked periodically for a portion of the, the harvest, the tenants refused. Finally, the owner sends his own son as a messenger to the tenants to really say, straighten up, that you aren't the owners as they fancied themselves to be. But as Jesus tells the story, he says that the tenants, the stewards of the vineyard, killed the son. Now, understand this, Israel's, one of Israel's favorite metaphors for itself was to be the vineyard of God. In fact, the columns leading into the temple itself were covered in this ornate gold vine. And so as Jesus is telling the story about the vineyard and the tenants, make no mistake about it, the people in authority, the religious leaders of the day, know who he's talking about. He's talking about them. And so then Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the true owner do when the tenants kill his son? And he said this, the owner will come and he will kill the tenants. And he will remove them and give the vineyard to somebody else. This is this kind of prophetic judgment that Jesus is speaking about the temple, about the observance. In fact, Jesus gets up from this moment here and he moves into a time where he is leaving the temple and he's talking about the destruction of the temple, that there is a rightful judgment coming upon this whole religious system and observances and the temple itself. That's the final scene. And so it's wrought with this prophetic judgment it's wrought with this tension, and in the right in the middle of this tension, Jesus sees a widow giving her last two coins into the temple treasury. In the midst of this verbal attack that Jesus is offering out. Now, if we've seen this in Mark's gospel, as we've studied it, we realize that Mark's gospel are not um, situations of, of, you know, disconnected recordings, that they are, there's their themes and threads, and there is something happening as we get this insert of this widow giving her last two coins into the temple treasury, surrounded by all of this prophetic judgment on the temple, all this concern over the, the teachers, how they're full of pride, how they're greedy, how they are devouring widows' houses. So listen to it again in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So the question is, 
as Jesus makes this observation about the widow, is he commending her? Or is he condemning a fading and false system of religion? That's the question. Is she a bright spot in the middle of all of this darkness of generosity and sacrificial giving? Or is she an object lesson of Jesus' justifiable judgment? And, and that's, what, that's the work. That, that's what we have to understand. That's what we have to begin to figure out. After such warnings, this, this story surrounded on both sides by warnings and judgment, does Jesus shift themes all of a sudden to give us this little glimpse of a good woman giving what is it's been a suspect ministry led by suspect people. Is that what he's saying? So realize this, that, that Jesus doesn't mention very much. There's no mention about the woman uh, as far as like Jesus saw her and he loved her. Like sometimes we get these moments where Jesus will give us insight into what he's feeling. We don't really have that here. Jesus doesn't hold her up necessarily as an example of giving. He doesn't say, Call the disciples around and say, did you see what she just did? Now go and do likewise. He doesn't do that either. He, he doesn't elaborate on what he sees. He doesn't say this, that the rich didn't give enough. He just says they gave a lot. They gave out of their wealth. He doesn't say that, you know, that she gave rightly. He doesn't say that the rich gave with a bad heart or a bad attitude, but she gave with a good heart and a good attitude. He doesn't say any of those things, which, which causes us like, well, what's happening here? What's, what's really the question? All it says is she simply gave out of her poverty and she gave everything that she had to live on, all that she had. So let's just ask a question. If you ran into a friend, somebody who was, uh, hadn't seen in years, down on their luck, really in financial ruin. They had $50 to their name. And you realize as they're talking to them for a moment, they had a utility bill they needed to pay. They needed to buy groceries. But your friend wanted to give their last $50 to a ministry led by corrupt people. And as they gave that last $50 to that ministry led by greedy and self-indulgent people, what would you feel? Would you celebrate that? Or would it grieve you? Would it trouble you? If there's a lesson on giving, sacrificial giving, the only one that you can truly draw from this observation that Jesus is making is this. If you're going to give like the widow, then you must give all of your things to the treasury. You must give 100% to God. That's the only clear application that this passage offers us about sacrificial giving. Be like the widow, give all of your things to the church. Is that what God is asking of us? Is, is that the right application of this passage? That's, Jesus sees a destitute, impoverished widow with no more resources, likely going home to die. There's something present within this temple observation, within this movement of giving. And where Jesus is sitting within the temple, it's this opposite, this area called the treasury. And the treasury was a place where alms and gifts and offerings were collected. And they were collected within these horns, uh, the shofar horns. And so there were 13 of them lined up within the temple. Uh, they were called trumpets. They would act like trumpets because 
at the base of each of these, there would be a designation for what the offering was for. And as you put in your gift, as you put in the money, it would make a noise as it descended through the horn, through the trumpet, letting everybody know how much you had given. And so this treasury became at times a parade of righteousness as the wealthy would come in and as they gave exorbitant amounts, increased amounts, you could hear it throughout the temple who had just given a large gift, who had just given a large offering and who hadn't. One New Testament commentary writer said this, that the Talmud, which is a, a, a collection of Jewish rabbinical teaching said this, that the giving of alms could buy salvation. That the giving of alms could secure a blessing. It was a way of getting your way into heaven. It was a way of buying blessings. And it was a, re, a, a way of relieving destitution, relieving your desperation. And I would say it's not unlike some of the contemporary evangelists that we also hear that says, sow seeds of faith. Just give me your money and God will multiply it back to you. And do you know kind of the audience that significantly gives a lot to those kinds of evangelists? Single women. Jesus saw a corrupt system where this woman giving her last two coins, her last two pennies was all that she had. And there was a hope that somehow she could secure a blessing. It was a hope that somehow God would change her situation. She was being dutiful, she was, but she's not the epitome of generosity that we look at. She is a woman who is victimized by a system that is failing by spiritual leaders that have failed her. That's what we begin to see. Let me show you just to add to this, the, let me show you another workaround that the religious leaders did around God's word at the expense of God's people. Mark chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus is saying this, again, a criticism and a charge against the religious leaders of the day. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. What Jesus is doing, he's highlighting this kind of financial practice in which you realize that, that there's certain kind of man-made traditions or customs within the community that are being taught on par with God's word and God's scripture. And, and the one scripture that Jesus highlights is this, honor your father and mother, take care of them financially. But there's a custom within Jesus' day in that if somebody said, well, I have taken this resource and I have devoted it to God, that person with that resource is now no longer obligated. They're free of their obligation to use that resource to care for their mom and dad. Well, why would somebody do that? Because with that resource, they can go to the temple and buy a blessing. With that resource, they can parade their righteousness and be notified, have their reputation and their piety increase at the expense of caring for their parents. And Jesus says, what you're missing is this, if God has given you money, your first responsibility is to take care of your family. And you have made temple observances and temple giving, and you've made the temple treasury 
equal to that, surpassing that. Man was not made for the law, but the law was made for man. And God's law was never meant to impoverish people. And so Jesus is pushing back on this custom in which people are actually neglecting their parents to give more money to the temple to secure something in their own reputation and their own piety with other people in their temple observance. She says, you're missing it. It was never meant to be like that. And so the widow was like that under this kind of judgment of God. She's poor. She's without a husband. Within this culture, she would have looked at it as like, something's wrong with you. God is judging you. And so her last act is to give all the money she has to hopefully see God bless her. That's what she's been taught because this religious system demands money. When I was in Nepal a couple years ago, it was my first exposure to uh, the world's religions. I had never seen it so much, kind of temples and mosques and um, uh, places of worship, and, and they were everywhere. And, and it didn't matter where you were, uh, even in the, in the mountains, you, would, you could never go very far without seeing way up high uh, a well-built, ornate uh, place of worship or temple. And the West, as I began to talk with one of the missionaries there, he said, the West has always kind of romanticized these other religions, and we kind of, understand, we kind of look into their philosophies and their tenets of faith, but he goes, in the day-to-day living out of these religions, there is something corrupt in place. He said, I'll give you an example. There was a woman in one of these villages who was dealing with breast cancer, and in order for her to receive a prayer from the monk, from the monastery that lived above her, she, um, he would need to be paid. Hundreds of dollars would be the cost for this monk to descend from his elaborate and opulent living to come into this impoverished, impoverished village, so much so that she didn't have enough money to secure that blessing. So the entire village has to chip in to have this monk hike down the mountain to burn incense and wave his hand and to leave with the village's money. This is, this is the part that begins to grieve Jesus. This is the part that begins to grieve us. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus kind of begins to elaborate and speak to what he's seeing. And as he does, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, religious leaders, woe to you, Pharisees. You create these loads and burdens and you place them on people's shoulders and backs and you don't lift a finger to relieve them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You tithe even your spices, dill, mint, cumin, but you neglect the greater things, the weightier things of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Tie the smaller things, but do not neglect the bigger things. Woe to you, Pharisees, teachers of the law, spiritual leaders, because you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is filled with greed and self-indulgence. This is Jesus' commentary on what he's seeing within this community, within God's people Now contrast that with what we hear in Job as Job talks about his own heart kind of being open, his own grief that he would have if there was anything about his life that didn't highlight justice, that avoided someone else, that wasn't grieved, that he would be grieved if there was anything about his life that took advantage of someone else. Job says this in chapter 31, verse 16. He says, if I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, If I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth, I reared them as a father would. And from my birth, I guided the widow. 
If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garment, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint, for I dreaded destruction from God. And for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. This is, this is the picture of the righteous Israelite living their life out. And notice how much of this is social for Job. So much of it is about how he's living with other people, how he's caring for other people. What are the needs around him? And how is he helping? How is he blessing? How is he benefiting those? This is the idea to make sure that you're not participating or practicing in a religious or secular system or institutional organization that's taking advantage of people. That's what we're beginning to see in this passage. If I have denied the desires of the poor, Job says, another way of saying that is this, he turns the poor man's life into delight. I read a story about a, a Christian businessman who owned a car dealership, a chain of them. And as he began to look at the practices of the dealership, he noticed one thing that had been in place and is in place in, in many across the country, and that is this uh, way in which we negotiate the sale price with the salesman. We, we barter it. Some of you love that experience, and some of you don't. And, and he began to realize uh, when they sold cars, who were the ones that did more negotiating? And he found out a few things that were interesting. He said, one, he said that more men negotiate and haggle than women do. He says, more, more men will press their interest. You know, they, they'll kind of lean in and they'll, they'll leverage that. Not only do more men do that than women, but he notices that more white and Caucasian people bartered and negotiated than African-Americans. And he made this observation that the people who are paying most for the cars in his chain of dealership are African-American women who often have the least amount of resources. And it's not a practice that's illegal. In fact, it's, it's quite acceptable across the industry. But it felt like a way of taking advantage of somebody who didn't have as much as others. And so he changed the practice within the industry. He decided within his change of, chain of car dealerships that they would have a no-haggle price. There would be a price set and that would be it. And that was his way of making sure he was dealing fairly with whoever came through the door. It was this Christian man's approach to deal with his neighbor and to try to address a need that he saw. And this is what begins to happen. When you and I understand the gospel, our disposition towards the people around us, it begins to adjust, it begins to change. Because what we realize is this, we have a sense of our own poverty. There's a sense of our own poverty of where we were, that if it wasn't for the gracious generosity, the free gift of God, that there would be no hope for us. There was no working our way out of the situation that we were in. And so if God didn't come at an infinite cost to himself, on our behalf, no one would be saved. No one would be rescued. But because God has, our life begins to change. And so a life without 
reflection, a life without introspection on how my life is connected to the people around me, how my life might be benefiting or hurting the people around me is a life that doesn't understand just how lost you were, just how impoverished you were, just how morally bankrupt you were before God's grace came into your life. And so we now become people, because of the gospel, who are charitable and gracious towards others. And when we see material poverty around us, it reminds us of a spiritual poverty that God has saved us from. A place of destitution that we were all found in. And this is the difference between religion and relationships. Religion offers us an exchange of services. In other words, you do something, you pray a prayer, you give a gift, and then God blesses. But what we have within the gospel is a relationship in which you've been given all access to the benefits of Christ because of his work for you, not your hard work. That before you were even aware, God demonstrated his love for you and died on the cross for you. And, and you enter into a relationship with a God who's already done it so that you could be served by him first. And this is a completely reorienting way to understand ourselves and the people around us. So the questions that we begin to ask, right, before, we, before we highlight this woman's sacrificial gift into the treasury, right, which we kind of elevate that up, perhaps the better question is, how did she get there? Or she only had two coins left to her name. And she gave it to a corrupt group of people. Is our life being leveraged to help other people? Are you a part of something that is dealing with the injustices and the abuse around you? Can the church avoid or even make it more difficult on the people around us to experience and to know God? Like, that's where this passage is meant to take us. To really begin to ask is, how are you living your life in respect to other people? This passage isn't about passing the offering plate at the end of the service and you and I giving sacrificially. This passage is about you and I leaving this place and living sacrificially. That you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ and now use that for others. What would your life look like if this is the year that that became the theme of your life? to look around and to see where the needs are, to look around and see where there's poverty, to look around where they're seeing abuse and injustice, and you begin to engage, begin to advocate, begin to get involved. That's where this passage begins to take us. How can the grace that God has given you be used to help somebody else? Let's pray. I read this this week. It said, the lower we see Christ come down to us, the higher we lift him in our heart. And the more we want to see others restored. Scriptures say, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God? Proverbs say, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, 
for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. God, help us as we start a new year to make us aware of our lives, of our homes, of our workplaces, of our schools. God, where are we taking advantage and where are we blessing? Where are the relationships, maybe even currently in our lives, that need to know your grace? As we have been saved by a God who has come to us, what would it look like for us to move, to draw near, to offer friendship and encouragement, to help support? What would our year look like with stories like that? God, show us the relationships around us. God, maybe the problem that we're having, the problem that we have with others is that we're just trading services. That our issues with others are really about you, Lord. That we act a certain way with other people hoping they're going to act a certain way with us. We've never really seen ourselves as poor and destitute before you. That we feel like, God, that you owe us something. Help us to realize this morning that, that we have nothing. And yet the grace of God and the love of God is close. And this morning we would ask you even into our own lives to save us to change us, to renew us, and the way that we live with others, and how we help them, because we have been helped. Holy Spirit, would you just use this morning, I pray, to set the direction for our year, to give, but to give in real places of need and hurt and to see life and hope enter into places that are dark, to bring encouragement to those that are around us, to lift up our brothers and our neighbors, to see the people as Christ saw them and to fight for those around us, for freedom, for something better because we've experienced something better in you, Jesus. And so take this time as we just begin to worship and reflect. Take this moment where we begin to sing just to allow what we're sensing from you to just drop a little bit deeper into our heart and to make a commitment to you today, to make a commitment to our neighbor today because of the grace that we've received.